Good evening, and welcome to Ideas. I'm Paul Kennedy. Tonight, part two of The Scapegoat, a series of five programs by David Cayley about the thought of René Girard. René Girard is a thinker who fits no category. He grew up in France, but went to the United States as a young man and taught at American universities for nearly 50 years until his retirement from Stanford in 1995. He was known first as a literary critic, and the book that made his name in that field, Deceit, Desire, and the Novel, is still being read and studied 40 years after its publication. His next major work, Violence and the Sacred, ventured into anthropology, where Girard uncovered the central role played by scapegoating in the formation of cultures. Then came Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World, in which Girard revealed the critical importance he attaches to the Bible in unlocking the secret of culture and disclosing the innocence of all scapegoats. Subsequent books have expanded on this theme. In this Ideas series, David Cayley is exploring the whole range of Girard's thought. In our first program, Girard set out the problem of violence in human societies and showed how religion controls violence through sacrifice. Tonight, his theme is the breakdown of sacrifice in the ancient world and the emergence of a new approach to social order in the Hebrew Bible. The Scapegoat, Part 2 by David Cayley. In the Christian Bible, in the Gospel of John, the high priest Caiaphas explains to the people why Jesus should be executed. It is expedient, he says, that one man should die for the people. The same principle is advanced by Robespierre at the trial which condemns Louis XVI to death during the French Revolution. Louis must die, Robespierre says, because the country must live. The idea is found again in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, where one of the characters makes a graphic prediction of the benefits of Caesar's death. From you, he says to Caesar, great Rome shall suck reviving blood. The concept in all cases is the same. The sacrifice of one saves all. A little bloodshed forestalls the threat of general violence. And in all three cases, the sacrifice is presented in a favorable light, as something both necessary and beneficial. But contemporary people are not apt to take this view. We call this transfer of the community's baggage onto one back scapegoating, by which we mean that we think the victim is actually innocent and the whole procedure arbitrary and unjust. According to René Girard, this connotation of cruelty and irrationality now surrounding the word scapegoat represents a remarkable historical achievement. Because what the word originally referred to, he says, was a ritual undertaken in good conscience and in defense of their society by the ancient Hebrews. It's described in the Bible, in the book of Leviticus. On the Day of Atonement, two he goats were brought to the high priests in front of the people, and the high priest put his hand on the head of the he-goat, and thus he transferred the sins of the community to the goat. Then as soon as that goat was loaded with the sins of the community, it was a high, highly contaminated animal, had to be 
chased out. And ultimately, there were people who followed that goat and killed it. And killed it through a very ritual way by forcing it to jump from a cliff, which was going to be fatal. But this leaving with the sins of people really means leaving with the violence of the people. And it really does that, since after the victim is killed, peace comes back. The scapegoat ritual, in Girard's view, addresses the threat of uncontrolled violence. This threat, he believes, is endemic to human society because of the way in which people's hostilities mirror and magnify each other, producing a recurrent spasm of violence that he calls mimetic crisis. Rituals of sacrifice and expulsion avert this crisis by reconciling everyone around a sacrificial victim. And for that reason, they constitute the universal foundation of human culture. This point is crucial for Girard, because it is only when we have understood how critical sacrifice is to the survival of society that we can begin to appreciate what is involved in overcoming this way of creating and maintaining order. Historically, he believes, this overcoming was the vocation of biblical religion. And it was only as modern societies digested their biblical heritage, Girard says, that they began to give the word scapegoat a new meaning. The first to do so systematically was Sir James Fraser, the Victorian anthropologist who made an encyclopedic catalogue of myth and ritual in his book The Golden Bough. What Fraser did was to realize that all communities have practices of the same type, and he called them scapegoat rituals. He called them scapegoat rituals because there was already a tendency in our languages, in our modern languages, to use the word scapegoat for an innocent victim who is killed by everybody or chased. And in a way, my whole system is only that insight, which appears in the 17th century. In France, for instance, I, a really good dictionary, Littré, 19th century, says that what they call the metaphoric use of scapegoat, not for the ritual, but for daily life appears in Saint-Simon, you know, who is a historian, Louis XIV, that's the first example he gives. Mrs. So-and-so is the scapegoat of her salon. Everybody dislikes her. They play bad tricks on her and so forth. He uses the word scapegoat. He realizes that what the Jews are doing in the scapegoat ritual and all other cultures is to systematize and ritualize a psychosocial mechanism, which is part of daily life. Fraser understood that since he expanded the use of scapegoat to all these things. He had that insight. But at the same time, he refused that insight. He refused to say we still have scapegoats in Victorian England. No, we are too good, too rationalist. We have too much technology. How could we do the same thing as these rude savages? Well, we don't do it in our religious rituals, but we do it in our daily life continuously. That's what Fraser refused in order to scapegoat the root savages himself. <laughs> Just as uh, other anthropologists today will scapegoat us in order to enthrone the root savages and say they are infinitely better than we are, which is the opposite. The whole mimetic system would like to end these compartments and say scapegoating is universal. 
How it became possible to recognize that scapegoating is universal is the story that tonight's program has to tell. Our starting point is the world of myth, where scapegoating, as such, is entirely hidden. Mythology, according to Girard, sees the scapegoat not as an innocent and arbitrary victim, but as a god. This comes about as follows. A scapegoat is killed in the first place because he is believed to be guilty of some crime which is polluting the community and causing disorder. But his death then restores order, an effect of such overwhelming benefit that the community comes to believe the victim must have intended it. Murder has made peace, a result so profoundly paradoxical, so welcome and yet so far from the community's intention, that it is understood as the product of a power transcending the community. This power is the sacred. It is created through sacrifice, but experienced as an independent being which can both save and destroy the community. The arbitrarily chosen victim, whose death has brought order out of disorder, has become a god who disorganizes and threatens in order to save. One has an example in Euripides' play, The Bacchae, in which the god Dionysus makes himself an object of pious devotion in Thebes by first driving the women of the city into a murderous frenzy in which they dismember their king. The community's relationship with this terrifying power, Girard says, is managed through ritual and narrated in myth. There is a story behind ritual, and this story is myth. But this story seems unreadable. Why? Because myth think that the victim is guilty, which is so powerful that the victimizers never realize we are dealing with a scapegoat. To have a scapegoat, by definition, is not to know that we have him, is to think we have a culprit. That's why at the beginning of a story, of a myth, of a foundational myth, which is really archaic, all you have is, a, is some kind of crime or a trickster, you know, who does something wrong. And then there is the violence against the criminal, the trickster. And then suddenly you discover that the former villain has become the reorganizer of the community he was disorganizing at the beginning. There is a logical break, which I think is the moment when it shifts from scapegoating to the divinization. Scapegoating of the one we hold for responsible of what's going wrong in the community, and divinization of the one we hold for responsible of what suddenly turns out to be right once again, which is after we kill that scapegoat, he becomes our savior. Therefore, he's alive. Therefore, he's a god. And we imitate him, and it's ritual. We talk about him, and it's myth. Myth, as Girard uses the term here, means not just any legendary tale, but a story that preserves some real trace of the foundational murder. The murder may be disguised. The mythological victim may only be wounded or suffer some accident. He may fly away, fall down, or be chased rather than actually being killed. But he will be in some way isolated from the other characters. He will bear some distinguishing mark, and he will be subject to some accusation of wrongdoing. This accusation shows, Girard says, that the myth is told from the perspective of those who believe that the scapegoat is the real source of whatever problem the community is experiencing. An example may make this clearer. 
So here is a myth from a South African people called the Venda, which Girard believes quite clearly preserves the traces of a collective murder. Python, the snake, who is a god, but who looks like a man at the beginning, has two, has several wives, and uh, he has a favorite wife who is new. She's quite uh, intelligible. And this wife is very surprised because at night suddenly she feels the dampness of Python, you know, the water and so forth. But anyway, Python wants to stay with that wife all the time. And uh, the first wife, who is the older wife, is very mad and obviously tries to separate them. But I'm mixing up a little bit here the story of the myth and the interpretation of the myth. It's not clear in the myth that the first wife is jealous, but at the same time it's incredibly clear. And there is a big drought, and uh, it's never told directly in the myth, but only at the end. But Python is the god of water. That's why his wife wakes up drenched in the night when she is uh, with him. Anyway, the first wife decides that the second wife disturbs Python and that there is a drought because Python has decided to hide and to hide at the end, at the bottom of the last lake, which still has water. And that the new wife, because she's been bothering Python, is responsible for that drought. So the old men of the village meditate on the situation and they decide to have what they call a beer offering a beer offering to the god Python. And, quite naturally, since he likes that new wife very much, it's this new wife which is entrusted with taking this offering to the bottom of the lake, to the god Python, with the whole community attending the thing. And as she enters the water and disappears in the water, the rain begins to fall, and the drought is at an end. Girard reads this myth as having originated in the collective murder of the younger wife, incited by the older at a time of drought. One then only has to imagine such an event coinciding with the return of the rain, and the rest would follow. The victim who had bestowed this gift would be understood as a god. Regular sacrifices would be instituted in order to reproduce the effect of the first and this sanctified violence would become the monopoly of the god, thus keeping all other violence at bay. This protection of the community against violence that it could not otherwise control is the crucial point for Girard. Sacrifice, he believes, really does work in this way, but it works only so long as everyone believes in it, and only so long as the sacrificial violence can be kept utterly distinct from the everyday violence which it is meant to prevent. When this precarious distinction breaks down, the result is what Girard calls a sacrificial crisis. And it's just such a crisis, he says, that is made visible in ancient Greek tragedy. The cultural system which has been established through sacrifice loses its effectiveness. And the difference between the good sacrificial violence that should push the violence away and the bad one becomes nil. Suppose someone violates the law and you individually, you say, I'm going to punish him because he has violated the law. 
But the question is, are you committing a sacrifice or are you committing a second crime? The people on the side of the other fellow are going to say that you commit a, a second crime. Therefore, they are going to want one vengeance. So sacrifice, ultimately, when the difference between it and the bad violence becomes indistinguishable, turns back to vengeance. And usually, that's what tragedy shows you, sacrifice going back to vengeance. For instance, Media, who kills her children, she calls it a sacrifice. Or uh, when Ajax, in the Trojan War, when Achilles doesn't want to fight, he wants to be given the weapons and the, the armor of Achilles, and Agamemnon refuses. Then he becomes so mad that he kills all the flocks of the army that are supposed to be the food, but I think also the sacrificial animals, you know. So is it a sacrifice? Is it a wanton gesture of destruction? Tragedy happens when you cannot distinguish, when every camp will interpret it differently. And that's a modern conflict, when it returns to chaos, when everybody says different things and ultimately the same thing. Another example of the crisis Girard is describing turns up in Shakespeare's The Tragedy of Julius Caesar. The conspirators who plan to assassinate Caesar are urged by their leader Brutus to think of what they intend as a sacrifice. Let us be sacrificers, not butchers, he says, perjurers, not murderers. And then, even more explicitly, let's carve him as a dish fit for the gods. But this attempt to invest Caesar's execution with a moral beauty that lifts it clear of any taint of mere violence will fail when Mark Anthony contests Brutus's interpretation. The result is civil war. When no privileged form of violence can be recognized, Girard says, violence spreads unchecked and eventually reduces everyone to the same condition. Antagonists become indistinguishable and turn into what Girard calls doubles. One sees a graphic example at the beginning of Sophocles' Antigone, where the two sons of Oedipus, Eteocles and Polynices, kill each other simultaneously in battle. You have the two sons who are twins. Yeah, yeah and who are fighting each other. Etiocles and Polynices are the arch-doubles, you know, and twins who destroy each other ferociously. That's why at the beginning of Antigone, they are supposed to solve the problem because one should kill the other and he should be victorious. But they both kill each other with the same gesture at the same time, the blade entering the same part of the body and so the speech is marvelous, showing that uh, the doubles cannot solve. The problem of the tragedy is that there are doubles, that everybody is turning into a double of everybody else. The fact that the fallen brothers are doubles sets the action of the play in motion. Antigone, their sister, recognizing that they are the same, wants to bury them both. But Creon, the king, orders that Polynices be left unburied outside the city's gates. He argues that the good order of the city depends on a distinction being drawn between them. One is the city's champion, the other its enemy, and he insists that Antigone recognize this distinction. That's what uh, Creon would like Antigone to do, because uh, he says, we have these two guys, they died at the same moment, in the same way. There is absolutely no difference between them. It cannot continue like that, because it's... Uh, 
uh, no order, there is no truth, and so forth. So, here is our good guy, here is our bad guy. And Antigone says, no, I'm not going to believe that. They are the same, and I'll treat them the same. I bury both of them. And you want to bury one honorably, and you want to cast the other one to the dogs? I refuse to do that. Antigone's refusal represents as deep a questioning of the logic of sacrifice as one can find in Greek tragedy. But the Greek tragedians, Girard says, can go only so far in exposing the precariousness and the arbitrariness of the distinction between sacrifice and mere violence. They can arrange the action they present in a revealing way, but in the end they are playwrights, dependent on the favor of their audience, and therefore bound to bring the myths they narrate to their predetermined ends. Sophocles' Oedipus the King is an example. Oedipus, from Gerard's point of view, is plainly a scapegoat. He faces the stereotypical accusation, which is found throughout mythology, that he has killed his father and married his mother. He's found responsible for the plague that is ravaging Thebes. He's exiled. And Sophocles, Gerard thinks, is at least partially aware of Oedipus's status, but unable to say so openly. Oedipus first had said to his wife, when I came here, they all told me that Laios, the father, had been killed by many murderers. And I, the one, cannot stand for the many. That's in the text of Sophocles. And if you look at that formula, the one cannot stand for the many, it's a definition of scapegoating, which shows, in my view, that Sophocles knows what he's doing. And he's playing. He cannot change the ending. He's writing for the people who will be there and will blame him if he changes some. So he can interpret it a little bit, but in a kind of hidden way, like this formula, I think, which is so suggestive. Tragedy, in Girard's view, is restricted to these suggestive hints about scapegoating. The play can vividly evoke the pathos of Oedipus's victimization, but in the end it continues, if only in a symbolic way, to sacrifice him. Theater develops out of sacrifice, and the Greek genius was able to turn sacrifice into tragedy. Because what is sacrifice? It's a reliving of the primordial murder, the myth. Therefore, tragedy is the t telling the story instead of having the victim. That's why when you tell the story, you must not have the sacrifice with it. The, the big taboo is you must not sh even show the violence. You can only use language. In Greek tragedy, violence is represented only by report. A messenger describes for the audience how Oedipus has scratched out his eyes, or how, in Euripides, the back eye, the women of Thebes have dismembered their king. But this action is never actually shown. Using language in this way is obviously a huge step from actually killing someone. But the theatre remains sacrificial, in Girard's terms, because it continues to serve the same purpose as sacrifice for its audience. This purpose is made explicit, he says, in the theory of tragedy which Aristotle presented in his Poetics, a century after the great tragedians had written. Aristotle wrote the Poetics, and he said tragedy is catharsis. Catharsis is a sacrificial world. It means purification, and it means purgation, purge. 
it means when the victim dies, you throw the victim to the gods. And the common man who is there in the theater says common wisdom, all these people are very ambitious, Oedipus, Tiresias, and so forth. They want to reach the stars, and they do very interesting things, but ultimately it hits them back. And we stay at home and we go to the theater, we are a little quiet people, you know, and how much better it is. You have that in every Greek tragedy. The sacrificial nature of the death of the hero is clearly indicated by someone in the chorus saying, oh, how good it is, go back to one's little fireplace there and put on one's slippers and not to have to die with the great heroes. So in other words, we throw them to the gods more or less, but we benefit from their death in the sense that it makes us more peaceful. It makes us eager to avoid trouble. That's what they say. We prefer to be common men, not to have any fame, and leave that ambition to these guys who will have a bad end. Greek tragedy for Girard is two-sided. It has its sacrificial, reconciliatory side, which makes us want to stick to what the chorus in the back eye calls the customary beaten path of those who walk with reverence and awe beneath the sons of heaven. But it also has its subversive side, evident in the defiance of Antigone, the subtle doubt Sophocles sows about Oedipus's guilt, and above all, in the very public airing of what Girard calls the sacrificial crisis, in which vengeance and vigilanteism have become indistinguishable from sacrifice. And it's this subversive side, Girard says, that accounts for Plato's hostility to the tragic poets in his masterwork, The Republic. We know that Plato couldn't stand them. And the idea that Plato was against poetry in the sense, you know, of uh, 19th century romanticism is just crazy. Oh, Plato is against art, and so it's not against art. Plato is against the representation of religious violence, revealing the secret, which you must not reveal, which is antisocial, which makes it impossible for the community to work. He says, these things are too ugly, let's hide them, let's not talk about them, or if we have to talk about them, we must have a big sacrifice at the same time. That's Plato. That's a republic, his greatest work. And Plato, of course, says this with the best intentions of the in the world. We must not reveal all that uh, stuff which is underneath the community because we're going to make the disorder worse. But Plato is the way of culture. The way of culture is to hide the violence in order to have less of it. His intention is the best possible. It's the highest culture. I'm Paul Kennedy, and on Ideas Tonight, you're listening to The Scapegoat, a profile of French thinker René Girard, presented by David Cayley. Plato, in his Republic, proposes what he calls a censorship of the writers of fiction. In order to prevent, he says, any erroneous representation of the nature of gods and heroes. 
According to Girard, he's saying, in effect, better not to go poking around in the nature of the sacred. The Bible, in Girard's view, takes the opposite tack. The biblical writers openly unravel mythology and demystify the sacred, making, as they go along, an ever fuller disclosure of what Greek tragedy can only hint at, the innocence of the scapegoat. In the Bible, from the very beginning, Girard says, something completely unprecedented happens. The stories that are told still have the structure of myths. Order is created from chaos, brother wars with brother, heroes solve riddles, an angry god floods the world, but their meaning is not the same. For example, when Romulus kills his brother Remus at the founding of Rome, Remus is understood to be justly punished for having transgressed the sacred boundary of the new city. When Cain, also a founder of cities, kills his brother Abel, the blood of the fallen brother cries out to God from the ground. Girard highlights this difference between the Bible and mythology in his most recent book, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning, by making a systematic comparison between two stories the tale of Joseph and his brothers in the book of Genesis, and the myth of Oedipus. The parallels are striking. Oedipus is abandoned in infancy, achieves power in Thebes by solving the riddle of the Sphinx, and then is undone when it is discovered that he has killed his father and married his mother. Joseph, too, is driven out in his youth when he is sold into slavery by his jealous brothers. He, too, achieves power by solving a riddle when he correctly interprets Pharaoh's prophetic dream of a coming famine, and he too faces an accusation of sexual wrongdoing. The accusation is made when Joseph is a slave in the household of Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. There is a great similarity between the Joseph story and the Oedipus myth, and you have the same episodes, and the Lady Potiphar episode is very much like incest, because the husband of Potiphar treats Joseph like his son. Therefore, if Joseph is really the one who tried to rape Lady Potiphar, it's as bad as incest. Therefore, the accusation against him is of the same type as the accusation against Oedipus. But what does the Bible tell you? Nonsense. It's the Gentiles who believe these things, who have this myth. But we Jews know better. And he's a little immigrant, you know, who is uh, inevitably suspect he has no protector. She is the one who tried to seduce him. The story resembles very much another Greek myth, which is the myth of Phaedra. You know, Phaedra, who wants to make love to her son-in-law. But the thing is that even though he doesn't want to make love to her, he is guilty, according to Venus, because he's too chaste. All the heroes who resemble Joseph, in other words, in myth are guilty of something. Either they've really done it, they committed the incest, or they didn't do it and they should have done it because it's bad not to have any sexual life. It's like today. You have to be both promiscuous and watch out about sexual harassment, <laughs> which may be difficult, you know, because you're in a world where the taboos and the command of promiscuity are always running into each other. The world of myth is very much like our contemporary world, but the world of Bible is much more logical and rigorous. Tells us he didn't do it. Joseph's innocence 
from Girard's point of view, represents an historical watershed, because heretofore, in all mythologies, the scapegoat hero has been portrayed as guilty. And Girard finds this innovation all the more striking because the tales are otherwise so similar. You see how close he is to Oedipus, how the related the two stories are, how easy it would be to say, but obviously the Bible is a myth too. But there is one question which is answered differently, because every time the myth asks the question, is Oedipus guilty? Is he about to kill his, and his father? And Our answer is yes. Is he responsible for giving the plague to the Thebans? Our answer is yes. Has he uh, slept with his mother? The answer is yes. Guilty, 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 guilty. Joseph, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. That's a huge difference because the not guilty is not arbitrary, but is a reading of mythology, is a reading of the fact that the unanimity of mythology is crowd contagion and not reason. The difference between Joseph and Oedipus culminates for Girard in the Bible story's final episode, when Joseph finally confronts his brothers. And in the course of that confrontation, a possibility unknown to mythology is revealed. Joseph has solved the problem of Pharaoh. Pharaoh has made him his prime minister. and. Uh, Jacob and his sons, you know, are starving in because drought and famine are not limited to Egypt. They are all over the Middle East. And Jacob and his son are in Palestine. And uh, they say, oh, there is a rumor that in Egypt you can get grain, you know, so let's go. So all the brothers go there, or rather not the 11 brothers, but only 10 because the 11th one is the only full brother of Joseph. His name is Benjamin, by the same mother. And uh, having lost Joseph, Jacob is very attached to Benjamin, who is the only son he has now from this wife he loves so much. So the brothers say to Jacob, we leave you with Benjamin here and we go there. And uh, if we get food, we'll bring it back to you, of course. So they go there and they get to Egypt and uh, they see Joseph and they don't recognize him, probably because he's in splendid clothes, you know, and he looks like uh, one of these uh, statues, you know, <laughs> in the Karnak temple. <laughs> so how could they recognize him? And uh, Joseph gives them grain, but says to them, if you need more, no, he asked them first, uh, are you the only brothers there are there? Or isn't there one more? And uh, they hesitate a little bit. They say, yes, we have one more, you know, but our father loves him very much because he's lost another son by that same uh, wife. And so we left him there. So Joseph says, next time, if you want more grain, you have to bring Benjamin with you. So, of course, they go, they eat their grain very fast, poor things, and they are hungry again. So they don't want to go, you know, they don't want to take Benjamin. But uh, Jacob forces them and say, you take Benjamin. I mean, it, it's not that far after all. Huh? And the first time you had no problem. So they go back there and they bring Benjamin. And Joseph 
doesn't make himself known the first time he gives them the grain and he has one of his servants hide a precious cup his precious cup the text says in the bag of Benjamin and uh, naturally at the border the police has orders you know to search them all and they find the precious cup in the bag of Benjamin so they bring them all back to Joseph who's in a good position he says uh, I keep Benjamin who is guilty you agree and you can all go in other words he puts them to another test of expulsion a test which is more tempting than the first since it seems that Benjamin is really guilty and nine of the ten remaining brothers say we go they don't ask for more and they are ready to go but Judah was the oldest of the twelve and the ancestor of Christ the Christians will add Judah says I can't stand it because if we come without Benjamin my old father is going to die so we'll have lost not only Benjamin my old father take me instead of Benjamin and uh, there Joseph forgives all his brothers one is enough he's put them to the test of expulsion only one managed to pass it and he forgives them all and invites them all to Egypt that's the beginning of the Egyptian period of the Hebrews because they all go there you know but isn't that a beautiful story the last episode shows that for Joseph the meaning of the story is the one I say will they expel me another time because Benjamin is obviously the same thing as Joseph and one only and they are all forgiven you know so you have substitution there which is the reverse of a sacrificial substitution if one acts right everybody is saved so the whole story I say is anti-myth and anti-sacrifice that's absolutely obvious now of course they didn't know the Oedipus myth but they obviously knew maybe they did who knows but uh, they knew similar myths and they were writing against them and to write it like another myth which is an anti-myth the opposite of a myth which reveals that mythology is the opposite of that love Joseph still feels ultimately for his brothers because in the Oedipus myth ends with the expulsion of Oedipus period the tale of Joseph and his brothers in Gerard's view is a conscious and intentional rewriting of mythology and as such he says it typifies the new thing that is happening in the Bible the Joseph story is absolutely archetypal in my view of the real meaning of what the Bible is about entirely the deconstruction let's use this word of mythology not through theory not through philosophy trying to establish the right concept but writing that incredibly beautiful story which is a first human story because Joseph is not a god and when the brothers you know get back to Egypt and find Joseph as an Egyptian god that's really what he is you know being second to the Pharaoh is being so close to divinity that you're certainly divinized too still they are Jews they don't divinize the scapegoat you see the the whole outline of what could be if it were a pagan story if it were you know a myth
Joseph would end up divinized, you see, but he doesn't. Another biblical story in which Girard finds the standard mythological plot turned inside out is the book of Job. He's analyzed it in an essay entitled Job, A Victim of His People, which was published in English in 1987. The book of Job consists of several sections, which scholars think were written at different times. But the part that most interests Girard is the oldest section, known as the Dialogues. There, Job is portrayed as a once great ruler who remembers days, the text says, when my feet were plunged in cream, streams of oil poured from the rocks, and like a king amid his armies, I led where I chose. But when we meet Job, he has been laid low and sits in misery, surrounded by several friends, so-called, who try to persuade him that his downfall is deserved. The friends are not friends at all. The friends are delegates from the mob who tries to persuade Job that he is guilty, that he should be the scapegoat, that they are right to turn him into a scapegoat. He was their leader. You know, there is a whole chapter about that, how he was an object of reverence and veneration for the whole people, which is incredible. And it's a story of a people who suddenly shift around and want to destroy what in Greece they would call their tyrant. Therefore, it's a story very much like Oedipus again, because it's a story contrary to what we think. Tyrannies, you know, the one-man rule in the ancient world was very fragile. If suddenly people shifted around, he was finished, you know. And uh, Job is another story like that. But Job, instead of saying, you must be right since you're all together, vox populi, vox dei, the voice of the people is necessarily the voice of God, which is really agreeing with scapegoating, that uh, Latin motto there. Job says, no, I'm not the one, maybe I wasn't worthy before of all that worship you had for me, you know, but I'm not that bad. <laughs> and uh, these two things cannot be right. I mean, there is something wrong. And he, he compares them to the mountain torrent in the desert. In the winter, there is so much water that you drown in it. And when you're really thirsty in the summer and the sun is shining and it's uh, 45 degrees centigrade in the shade, not a drop of water. You see, therefore, there is no reason in what you do. At one moment, you turn a man into a god. The next minute, you turn him into your victim, scapegoat. So he's reacting in a human way. And he says, there must be a real god. My defender is alive. And God must be on the other side. But if you look at the dialogue, clearly you see that Job is not sure. It's very difficult to stand up against everybody. And there are moments when he says, you probably are right. And most readers read the thing against Job because we know that the fourth friend, you know, who makes his speech at the end was written later by readers who are incensed by the insolence of Job and wanted to convict Job a little more. So that's really fascinating. But the book of Job itself moves against this, and at the end, God says, the one who talked about me correctly is Job. When he said, I'm not the mob, 
I'm against the mob. The book of Job, therefore, is a fantastic battleground between the two great conceptions of the divine, you know, which is the mob conception, which is that uh, elaboration of society, and which is God is totally alien to that, so far from you, so hostile to all your victimizations that you don't understand him. Why do the friends have to convince Job? Well, because they to are... To go part, along. Like in a Soviet trial, if you really want to be unanimous, you want a victim himself to agree with you. It's like the Moscow trials of 1937. The best thing to convince the crowd, if you have the guilty people say themselves, I should die, I'm guilty. Therefore, it's ideal. There is no possible voice that can go against the new truth. So Job refuses what Job, all antique scapegoats accept, yeah, their he, own the guilt. The most interesting moments are the moments when he vacillates and he's almost ready to say to his friends, you must be right because I'm the only one of my kind. How could I be right? When he says, even the lowest of the lowest, I'm the scapegoat of the scapegoats, because this community, obviously, read the text, it's fascinating. They have their own outcast. And he said, the outcast, they cast stones on me. They treat me. I'm the outcast of the outcasts now. And I was at the top. Therefore, how could I fail to be guilty? But then he says, no, no, no. I will not believe you. Job's refusal so unlike Oedipus's almost eager embrace of his destiny, makes Job, in Girard's words, a failed scapegoat. He may waver, but in the end, he rejects the friend's claim that it is God who has unleashed against him a burning wrath, a hail of arrows, an arsenal of terrors. God, he asserts, cannot be a persecutor or the friend of persecutors. In this sense, Girard says, what is going on in the book of Job is what is going on through the whole length of the Hebrew Bible. The very idea which humanity has of God is changing. This change is also visible in the way sacrifice is understood. In Genesis, seemingly, child sacrifice is still being practiced. By the time of the prophets, all sacrifice is being denounced as displeasing to God. The first turning point comes, Girard says, when God demands of Abraham the sacrifice of his only son, Isaac, and then, at the last moment, supplies a ram in his place. My interpretation of Isaac's sacrifice is that it is the end of child sacrifice. God asks him to kill his son. Which God is that? It's the old God. It's a traditional God. But the text is very powerful and very deep. What the text tells you ultimately is in order to transcend the old gods, you must obey them. If you do away with human sacrifice, you must have that stage of animal sacrifice. You're going to get beyond child sacrifice, not by rebelling against religion or by rebelling, by staying within your tradition would include the transcendence of that. I think that's what the text ultimately says. God will provide. You know, when Isaac asked that question, who is going to provide the victim? I see the knife, 
You know, when Isaac is going up with his father, say, I see the fuel for the fire, I see the knife, but who is the victim? And Abraham has that gigantic reply, God will provide. Which the Christian use, of course, God will provide his son, ultimately. Or just as uh, Judah, for the Christian, you know, Judah, in the Joseph story, is the figure of Christ par excellence. No one wants to sacrifice himself to save one's brother. Judah does it, just as Christ will. But he sacrifices himself against sacrifice, in order not to have uh, Benjamin sacrificed, in order not to have Isaac sacrificed. The overcoming of human sacrifice is a difficult achievement for contemporary people to imagine, since we can hardly believe that it ever occurred in the first place. But child sacrifice was practiced throughout the Middle East, Girard says, and seems to have sometimes recurred among the Israelites, even after God stayed Abraham's hand from his son. If you look at the Bible, the whole background there is child sacrifice. And in my view, the first books of Genesis are how we surmount one way is circumcision. There is a scene which is called the circumcision of the son of Moses. And uh, the mother there intervenes and saves the child from his father and circumcises her husband and says, you will be for me a husband of blood. And there you see very well, if you read it in the context of child sacrifice at one end, that circumcision is one of these ways it's another form of sacrifice to avoid the killing of the child. You see, so you can say you have a history of sacrifice towards less and less sacrifice. This history in the Hebrew Bible culminates in the writings of the prophets who denounce sacrifice altogether. They speak at a time of crisis and conquest when the people have grown desperate and some, according to the prophet Jeremiah, have even returned to human sacrifices. But what the prophets tell people, Girard says, is that sacrifice will no longer work. The prophets operate in a world where violence is getting worse and worse. And people think they are going to be saved by sacrifices. But the prophets all say sacrifices are no use anymore. You can pile up a lot of meat on a lot of meat, and it's not going to help you. They are dead. And the only way to replace sacrifice is to be good to your neighbor. What are your endless sacrifices to me, God says through the prophet Isaiah. Let me have no more of the din of your chanting, he says through Amos. But let justice flow like water and integrity like an unfailing stream. Like the Greek society portrayed by the tragic poets, the Israel of the prophets has plunged into what Girard calls a sacrificial crisis, the vicious circle that begins when sacrifice loses its effectiveness and the good violence can no longer be distinguished from the bad violence. To try to go back, the prophets say, will only intensify the crisis. The only way out now is to face the violence, other than trying to conjure it away through sacrifice. Your hands are covered with blood, Isaiah says. Wash, make yourselves clean. 
The many denunciations of sacrifice in the writings of the prophets are the culmination of what Girard earlier called the deconstruction of mythology in the Hebrew Bible. Violence and victimization have been disentangled from the divine and made visible as a human predicament. In Girard's view, a huge step forward in human self-understanding. The story will go on in the Christian New Testament, and it is to Girard's understanding of that book and of the significance of the life and death of Jesus that I will turn in the next program of this series. On Ideas Tonight, you've listened to part two of The Scapegoat, a five-hour series about the thought of René Girard. René Girard's new book, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning, is published in Canada by Novalis and is available now in bookstores. Tonight's program was produced and presented by David Cayley, with the assistance of Richard Handler. The series continues tomorrow night. Our technical director is Dave Field, Associate producer Liz Nage. You can order a printed transcript of this series for $25 or a set of audio cassettes for $39.95. Write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Or by email, it's ideas at cbc.ca. We also accept credit card orders by phone. The number is 416 416- 205-7367. The executive producer of Ideas is Richard Handler, and I'm Paul Kennedy. Please stay tuned now to CBC Radio 1 for the hourly news. <laughs>